Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 113, taped off the radio. This is Rock and Roll Radio. Come on, let's rock and roll with the remote. Hello and welcome to episode 113 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. So after comics and a detour into movies, I'm back on music for an episode, and this is one that I've had in mind for nearly a year and a half, taking another dive into my pop music upbringing and education. And really, I'm not sure that's even the right way to phrase it. But it's the best thing I can think of at the moment. Basically, the idea for this episode originally was to come up with a sequel to the Softacular. That was the title of episode 53, by the way. And if you haven't listened to it, it's basically a mixtape of soft rock and parent-friendly radio classics from the late 70s and early 80s. The kind that would be played on 106.7 WLTW Light FM in New York. The playlist that made up the Softacular was structured based on a journey. We started at my parents' house in Sable and with what would be played on WBLI 106.1, which was kind of the lighter version of Top 40, the parent-friendly Top 40 for the time, if you will. Then we drove across Long Island from Suffolk into Nassau County to New Hyde Park, eventually changing over to Light FM. And yes, it was a very specific journey that not everyone who might have listened to it took, but there's a reason that so many of us remember the Amy Grant-Peter Cetera duet, The Next Time I Fall, and it's not because we were really into what they were playing on VH1 back in the mid-1980s. No, there were common artists and songs that we all remember because of vast amounts of radio airplay, to the point where even before becoming cognizant of a radio station, a playlist, or the top 40, we knew them because they were unavoidable at the time. If I'm talking pop music of my early childhood, this is stuff like Irene Cara's Flashdance, What a Feeling, Bonnie Tyler's Total Eclipse of the Heart, or the Laura Branigan classic, Gloria. Alright, so maybe I mentioned Gloria so I could play a clip of Gloria again, even though I did it a few episodes ago. I can't help it. It is easily one of the best songs of the 80s. But my point still holds up. There are songs that are so present in our lives from an early age that they almost become part of us. And then there are the songs that become some of our first favorites beyond those car rides because we've discovered the radio for ourselves. 
Sometimes that leads to owning an album or two, and I can attest to getting a few cassettes for my birthday or Christmas over the years because of a few songs heard on the radio. But that usually took time and patience back then that I often didn't have. Danger Zone was only going to be played on the radio so many times before it rotated out, and hopefully that would be before Christmas. So my other alternative was to put a blank tape into my boombox when a song I liked came on the radio and press record. This wasn't as easy to do as it seemed. Sometimes there was static. Very often I'd miss the beginning of a song or a DJ would be talking over it so I couldn't hear the intro. Or they'd play the song quicker than I could hit the stop button so after, say, Bob Seger's Shakedown, I'd get the first few seconds of La Isa Bonita. That is, if the DJ didn't come on to talk about it or it wasn't some car dealership commercial. There were a lot of car dealership commercials on the radio. Anyway, this is what I thought would make a great follow-up to the Softacular, while also fitting in with all the now-countless music-themed episodes I've done, from my Columbia House retrospective to my many conversations with Amanda about our most important albums and various years of the 1990s. And there is a playlist element to this one, although I will go more the route of playing some, some of the song and then talking about it because, well... It's not necessarily casting a wide net as so much as it's a random selection, and it actually doesn't work as a playlist playlist. It's really just more of a tour. You'll see what I mean as I get into it. I'll also be pulling from my sophomore year of high school, which was the fall of 92 until the summer of 93. I've been recording random songs off the radio since I was in the fourth or fifth grade, but... That was like a first go-round of sorts, same, kind of in the same way that I collected comic books around the same time before finally latching on to them in 1990. 1986 and 1987 and the music I absorbed back then could be their own show, because much like comics, at some point my burgeoning passion for pop gave way to TV shows and movies, especially movies. I was in junior high from 1989 to 1991, I remember taping a few songs off the radio and really loved what I heard of the dances. Again, that's another show. But I started high school in the fall of 91, and though it took a little while to get going, as I went through that year and the summer of 92, I began to form actual opinions when it came to music, began to follow bands, and actually collect their albums. Queen was probably the biggest one, and I began spending my afternoon time in my room listening to the radio instead of watching cartoons on TV. So this is going to be about the radio stations I could pick up, the songs I heard, and really how my musical taste started to form at around the same time the musical landscape was changing. I'll get started after this break, so stick around. Raised on the radio Oh 
For years, the Fire and Water Podcast Network has found its joy talking about comics. From Aquaman and Firestorm to Batman and Plastic Man, from giant treasuries to pocket-sized digests, from massive miniseries events to singular one-shot adventures, from romance to horror to whatever the hell Ohatmu or not is. In the last year, they've begun to carve a path through their favorite television shows, such as MASH, Cheers, and Justice League Unlimited, and there's no sign of them stopping. What medium will fire and water conquer next? Introducing Fire and Water Records, the music anthology podcast from the Fire and Water Network. Find your joy in all new ways as members of the Fire and Water Network and their friends discuss favorite songs, albums, concerts, and artists. Hang on, I've been doing a music show for two years. Featuring Record Revolution. Join the Brothers Daily as we catalog the essential years that shaped popular music and our own lives. A very daily Christmas. An annual celebration of our favorite holiday tracks. Plus, all new episodes of Zoom for Sam. The show in which I share my joy of Samantha Fox by spotlighting a single single every single episode. And Pod Dylan. No, not Pod Dylan. We discussed this. That's staying on its own feed. Not Pod Dylan, but everything else I said. Plus, so much more. There's even a chance David Ace Gutierrez will show up. Which brings us back to Fastball, which is really one of the most interesting American bands in the world today. When you think about the number of side projects and solo projects associated with the band, it actually almost out. Fire and Water Records, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I will admit that this is a very weird year for me. My like freshman is shop, soft, especially sophomore year of high school. And trying to remember everything has been pretty weird as well. It's not like I'm getting old and starting to forget things. I mean, I am 43 at this point and definitely have my moments, but it's more like there are things in the past that blend together and that means that instead of relying on my memory or for when something came out or when something took place, I have to actually do research to verify what is correct. Plus, when it comes to music, I often have the misfortune of picking up things that were popular or cool long after they had faded. 
sure, sometimes I am with it and listen to a single or an album that just dropped. Usually I get into something that's been around for years and to the point where the band has officially called it quits. The song that started this segment is a great example of that, because while the name Queen, as far as bands are concerned, was familiar to me in 1991, mainly because when WPIX used to advertise Flash Gordon when it was on television, they used to say, With music by Queen! And uh, I knew We Will Rock You and We Are the Champions because every Little League kid knew We Will Rock You and We Are the Champions. But by the time I really started listening to Queen, it was about 1992 when everybody else listened to them for a hot minute because of, well, Wayne's World. But I kept listening to them, and that is, say it with me, a whole other episode. Anyway... The only ways I could possibly keep myself current with music back in 1991 was to listen to the radio and maybe check out what was big at Record World in the Sunvet Mall. That is, if I had any money that wasn't being spent on comics, and usually I didn't. So my purchase tapes would be on Christmas and birthday wish lists. And that meant the radio was key. I used whatever blank cassette tapes I could get my hand on to tape things off the radio. Later on, I'd start making actual mixtapes, many of them horrible, but at this point I just started filling up tapes randomly and with no plan. You know, unlike a mixtape which would take serious labor and curating before I gathered the CDs or other cassettes and then got the nearest pencil to wind the tape forward just enough so the lead didn't cut off the beginning of the first song, my generation worked really hard for these things. You think I'd be getting to the point here, right? Yeah. So anyway, I remember having a small collection of songs on tape at one point, and I was in one of my classes working on some group project, and we were completely off topic with our conversation, and the conversation got around to mixtapes. And I think somebody else was passing a tape to someone or something. I just I don't I don't know how we got to the topic, but I remember one of the guys saying he made a tape called Keith's Greatest Hits. And um, that stayed with me. That stayed with me for a couple of years. And when I finally decided, hey, you know what? I'm just going to start putting stuff on tapes that I, so I can listen to it over and over again. I decided to call them Tom's Crap. I can't tell you why. I can't tell you where the idea came from, except that it was probably me being a smartass in some regard. The name stuck, though. And by the time I graduated college in 1999, I had 20 of these tapes. Not only that, but since I had a clip art program on my computer, I would print up covers for them instead of relying on the handwritten index labels that Maxell provided. These covers weren't fancy at all and were basically the title of the tape and the list of the songs written in Times New Roman. But I thought it looked pretty cool to open up my shoebox of cassette tapes to see each volume of Tom's crap arranged in number order. Everything that I'm going to be talking about on this episode was on those tapes, but only the first couple because by the time I hit volume three of Tom's Crap, I was filling up tapes with songs that I was taking from CDs so that I could listen to Pearl Jam or Stone Temple Pilots on my Walkman. In that case, I was using my own CDs, I was borrowing my friends and roommates' CDs, or I was checking them out of the public library. Because whomever was in charge of purchasing CDs for our public library was either really, really cool, they knew teenagers, they were listening to what the teenagers were asking them to get, or they actually were teenagers, Who because we had a bunch of people from my high school who worked part-time shelving books. But the first two volumes of Tom's Crap were probably the most random selection out of all of them because they were taken straight from the radio. 
And I should mention the actual stations I was pulling from at the time, because being in the New York area and during a time when everything wasn't owned by a giant media company, because by the early 2000s, like everything would be clear channel, I had several options. The Softacular was where I mentioned WLTW as well as WBLI. WLTW was Light FM, WBLI was parent-friendly pop rock. BLI was the station my sister and I would get our parents to listen to in the car, and they did play Casey Kasem's American Top 40 every Sunday morning, so I did spend at least a few years knowing what was charting. But with a radio in my room, I could discover other stations, ones that I had known about because they were what my peers listened to, because I saw the television ads, or because at one point I had seen a bumper sticker on the back of someone's car. Z100 was the big top 40 radio station, and if I placed the radio in the right spot and angled the antenna the right way, it would pick it up clearly. But they played more R&B and dance stuff than the rock and alternative I wanted to listen to, so I wound up settling for three stations, 92.3 K-Rock, Q104.3, and 102.3 WBAB. K-Rock at the time was the big dog in modern rock radio in New York City. Plus, they were the home of Howard Stern in the morning and Ranger Games when they were on at night. I was never that into Stern, to be honest with you. I tried to listen to it on and off in high school and summers during college, but I found his radio show got very boring and it had interminable ad breaks. Seriously, he would go on forever about Snapple or something. But Rangers Games were a blessing because I didn't have cable and therefore didn't get the MSG network and could not watch their 94 Stanley Cup run on television. So I listened to the entire one on the radio. And they did play mainstream alternative, the stuff that was being shown on MTV at the time. You might not necessarily hear The Cure or The Smiths, as that was just down the dial at 92.7 WDRE, a station that was really freaking cool, but I could barely get it to come in on my radio. So I stuck with K-Rock and Q104.3 for rock and alternative, uh, even though Q104 didn't come in very well either. And this, by the way, I think has to do with the fact my parents' house is old. It was built in the 30s, and it has plaster walls. So whenever I was in my car or even walking around listening to my Walkman, I actually picked up a lot of these stations pretty clearly. I mention it, though, because as a result, I would really jockey between two stations, 92.3, maybe Q104, so it's like three, but I would usually keep the radio tuned to 102.3 WBAB, Long Island's home of rock and roll. We are in our rock block party weekend. WBAB Babylon thanks everyone in Islip Terrace for showing the world they love rock and roll. At the time, WBAB, which is based out of Babylon, Long Island, hence BAB, was a healthy mix of current and classic rock. Plus, its evening nighttime DJ was Opie. Opie would go on to become part of the infamous morning zoo shock jock duo Opie and Anthony. Opie interspersed the songs he played with bits, callers, and the occasional silly but topical novelty song. I know I have said this phrase three times now, but this might be part of its own episode because my history with comedy dovetails with this history of radio because of the way I was introduced to a number of comedians via albums. And, you know, I even called on to that show a few times and got on the air twice. I remember that one time I was on live and another time I managed to catch myself in time to tape my call, and that was pretty cool. 
at least when I was 15. <laughs> but this was also at the time when I was writing snarky letters to comic books, another rather pathetic attempt in my life to somehow be cool or something, which is also what this podcast is, by the way. So you're welcome for that. I bring up Opie and I bring up comedy, especially uh, novelty songs, because while I won't be talking about those specifically at this time, I do want to bring up a song that I had had on Tom's Crap, and that was practically a novelty song, which is the song Get a Haircut by George Thorogood and the Delaware Destroyers. From the day I left school Grew my hair long And broke all the rules I'd sit and listen To my records all day With big ambitions Of when I could play My parents taught me What life was about So I grew up the type They warned me about They said my friends Were just an unruly mob And I should get a haircut And get a real job I don't know if I can really explain George Thorogood. He and his band were a really solid rock blues band. They wrote and recorded Bad to the Bone, which just about everybody knows. Uh, one bourbon, one shot, and one beer. They sounded like they should be playing some smoke-filled dive where the majority of the patrons are middle-aged and trying to shove themselves into tight-fitting clothes that barely fit when they were 17 to begin with. I closed my eyes and I could see the bad dye job and eyeliner as well as the unfortunate selection of facial hair with a bowling shirt or something similar. This is all so greasy. The song is not as greasy as it seems. It's, it's like a cross between a mid-1980s Twisted Sister song and the song Signs by Five Man Electrical Band, which WBAB would spin from time to time. I mean, I can picture Niedermeyer being in the video and telling George Thorogood to get a haircut and get a real job. Of course, the irony at the end of the song is that he makes it as big as a rocker and he didn't have to get a haircut or a real job and he's ten times richer than his big brother Bob and, well, there you go. And my liking it when it got airplay in 92 makes sense because I was also listening to a ton of Weird Al Yankovic at the time. In fact, there were a few Weird Al songs on Tom's Crap Volume 2. And while I still love a good parody song, especially those that are centered around the holidays, I would move on to listening to music that was less novelty and more straightforward, even if there were pop bands that were clearly having fun with some of their tunes. Opie got replaced about 1994 or so, and I can't remember who replaced him, but it was a female DJ, and she had one of those really great female DJ voices. One that's not as girl-next-door-ish as Martha Quinn or smoky as Nina Blackwood. It was almost like the really hot older girl from down the block on whom I had a crush was just playing music just for me. And I go down this road to mention that I once called into a 70s request night to ask them to play some classic Aerosmith, and uh, she felt bad for me that I was stuck studying for my calculus final. She played Toys in the Attic, by the way. So she went album cut. Great song. 
And really, WBAB did give me an education in rock and roll that I don't think I would have gotten had I only listened to Top 40 Radio. When listening to the station and doing my homework, I heard American Pie by Don McLean, which I also taped onto Tom's Crap Volume 1, but talked about at length in my Day the Music Died episode last year. They would play the full-length scenes from an Italian restaurant, the live version of Miami 2017 Seeing the Lights Go Out on Broadway by Billy Joel, and deep Springsteen cuts like Rosalita Come Out Tonight, which I know doesn't seem like too deep of a cut for people who are really into Springsteen, but it's not something you heard on the radio regularly back in 1992. Plus, this is where I first heard Zeppelin, The Who, Stone songs that weren't satisfaction or start me up. Pink Floyd, Jimi Hendrix, Rush, Styx, Frampton, so many more. Plus, they played Christmas rapping by the waitresses every single year, and they kept up with what was new, even if it was new stuff like Coverdale Page instead of Jane's Addiction, but I did hear my fair share of Pearl Jam and Stone Temple Pilots. So why then? was the very first song on volume one of 20 of Tom's Crap, a Patti Smythe song called No Mistakes. Before listening to this and prep for this episode, I honestly hadn't listened to it since the early 90s, and I have to say that it sounds like it should be the song that is played over the end credits of some romantic film of the era, one of those movies about a relationship or a marriage that is struggling because maybe someone's getting tired or an old flame returns or whatever, and they eventually realize how important they are to one another. Like, I listen to the bridge and I can envision the credit for Gaffer, Key Grip, and Best Boys scrolling up the screen, and I can see all the songs being used with soundtrack available on MCA records and cassettes before finally hitting the MPAA logo while it fades out. And you know I'm only half joking. (laughs) The guitar licks and the use of piano in the song are very much in the style of adult contemporary rock from 1992. Smythe, of course, had been the front woman for Scandal in the mid-1980s, and they had hits with The Warrior and Goodbye to You. They were both very Pat Benatar-esque. 
She went solo with an album in 87 that didn't fare too incredibly well, but this self-titled second album featured the song Sometimes Love Just Ain't Enough, a duet with Don Henley that went all the way to number two. No Mistakes was the follow-up and peaked at number 33, which means that more than likely I had heard the duet with Henley, then they played this, and I decided I liked it and taped it the next time it came on, but then I never really heard it again. And speaking of Don Henley, it does remind me a little bit of his song The Last Worthless Evening, a 1989 hit that has a great title, but only hits like number five on my top five Don Henley solo songs. What? I have a top five list of Don Henley solo songs. You don't believe me? Okay, in preference order. The Boys of Summer, The End of Innocence, The Heart of the Matter, Love Rules, which is from the Fast Times Ridgemont High soundtrack, and The Last Worthless Evening. There you go. So anyway, back to Patti Smythe. This is a perfect illustration of how deeply affected I had been by the hours upon hours of listening to Light FM in the car. It's also not surprising, considering along with all of the alt-rock, metal, and punk I listened to in my teen years, I also listened to Billy Joel and Elton John, and even stuff that my parents were still listening to, like Paul Snyman and even the Righteous Brothers. I have always had an affinity for this lighter brand of rock pop, and for songs like Life as a Highway by Tom Cochran. specific memory of the song. It was played at one of my high school dances, and before the song came on, the DJ said, Are you ready to rock? And then he began playing this. I am pretty sure that he was being serious, but I'm also pretty sure that the dance floor cleared after everybody laughed. People weren't collectively rocking out to Tom Cochran in 1992. Okay, I was. Briefly. This is one of those songs that was ubiquitous when it was a hit, and according to my crack research, peaked at number six on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1991, while going all the way to number one in Canada. It apparently had also been a song Cochran had conceived back in the 80s, but he never finished, which I definitely understand, because there's a number of works out there that people don't put out for a long time because they want them to be perfect in one way or another. But this also has a corporate rock tinge to it, 
I mean, it's not as egregious as, like, We Built This City or several heart songs from the era, but I definitely get the feel of mainstream, like the definition of mainstream, the type of thing your parents would have thought you would have wanted to rock out back to in 1991. So while I definitely taped it off of WBAB, I probably heard it more times than I can even remember in 91 via WBLI while we were in the car. Funny enough, before I get to the next mainstream rock song here, I have one other memory associated with this song, but not the Tom Cochran version. In the mid 2000s, Rascal Flatts recorded a cover of this that was used in the film Cars, and I distinctly remember sitting in a yearbook workshop where all of the schools were showing off their books' new covers, and one of them had a picture of a mountain road that was heading off into the distance with Life as a Highway written in like electrified script in the sky. It was a yearbook cover. Actually, this is where I found out the song had been covered because I was like, wasn't this song like popular 20 years ago? But, you know, even when it comes to rural high schools, I'm still not with it. But then there's the next song on my list. It's also a mainstream rock track. And that is Driven by You by Brian May. Ooh, everything I do. This is another mainstream rock track, but whereas Life as a Highway was me taping a song that was kind of an earworm off the radio, this was me taping a song because it coincided with what I was getting into. Like I mentioned earlier, I started really getting into Queen back then, and when WBAB played this solo track, I was really excited. I even taped his appearance on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, which also featured him performing Tie Your Mother Down with Slash. It's a really good performance, by the way. And yet, I never bought this album. I don't even know if I asked for it for Christmas, to be honest with you. I remember seeing it at the record store. I saw it offered by Columbia House, but I never actually picked it up. I instead chose CDs from Queen's back catalog, which probably is the better choice anyway. And it's not a bad song, but... It has the feel of like an O'Sherry or, or something like off of Springsteen's early 90s albums. You know, a really good song that sounds like it could have been a Queen song, but it's not totally. It makes me think of Breakthrough from The Miracle or Headlong from Innuendo. And the latter is actually an appropriate comparison because Headlong was actually meant for Brian May's solo album, which he was working at the time. But Queen recorded it, and he liked Freddie's vocals on it so much that the band just put it on the Innuendo album. 
And maybe it is the absence of Freddie Mercury that's the reason I am not as enthusiastic about it. I mean, it's not that Brian May can't sing. He's got a couple of my favorite Queen songs, actually, that he does the vocal on. I really like 39 off Night at the Opera and All Dead, All Dead off of News of the World. But it's missing something, like an oomph, you know, a, a little bit of a swagger or something. And, and I think that's what Freddie, that's what was Freddie, you know. But I do remember, though, that my copy of the song on Tom's Crap was played over and over again, even though it was missing like half the intro because I had heard it and I hit record like a second or two too late to get everything on it. It didn't bother me because I used to blast the hell out of this in my room. Interestingly enough, by the way, one more story about this Brian May album. I encountered Back to the Light, uh, the album the song is taken from, in the wild a few years later at a rest stop in the middle of Spain in 1994. Now, I realize that sounds like the beginning to a Hemingway short story, but really, I was traveling through Europe for the summer with one of those tour groups. I wrote about this years ago, back in like uh, 2009 or so, that you can see it on the blog. Uh, the name of the entry is called uh, Leaving Yourself Behind or Leave Yourself Behind. But anyway, I was traveling through Europe, and we were on, the, on a long bus trip from Barcelona to a city in central Spain named Zamora. It was like a 12-hour bus ride, I think, and we stopped here in the middle of nowhere for a bathroom break. I was killing time before we got on the bus, and there was a CD spinner rack on the convenience store counter. This CD was in it, and I thought it was weird that it had a white cover instead of the black cover I'd seen on the Columbia House catalog. Years later, I would find out that the black cover was a U.S. release cover, and that was different than this white cover that was the European release cover. And I didn't buy the CD then either, mainly because I wanted to spend my money on other things, and I also didn't have a CD player with me to play it on the bus or stuff like that, so there was no use. But like I said, I taped it off the radio because I had really gotten into one band. Now this next one is probably the most independent song on my list, I guess, and that's Maria's Wedding by Black 47. Now, I let off this retrospective with a novelty song of sorts by George Thorogood. And this kind of skirts that line as well, because the story it is telling is a bit silly in a sense. But Black 47 were not a novelty band. They were a Celtic-flavored rock-punk band similar to the Pogues. And they were formed in New York City and seemed to be one of those regionally known bands who were like a best-kept secret. I think I only ever came across a couple of people in college who had this CD or had heard of them, and they were all from the New York tri-state area. We also had always had the same conversation when we saw that CD or saw a mention of that band 
it, it was kind of went along the lines of like, I thought I was the only person who knew this song. Maria's Wedding got some rotation in the BAB playlist in 1992, and I was fortunate enough to grab it when they played it once. Years later, I would download it through, well, Napster or Audio Galaxy, Kazaa, one of those early 2000s file sharing services. I would put it on a CD mix that was a child of sorts to Tom's Crap called the Inane Crap Mix. There were six of those CDs. Probably could take a look at those at some point. I need, probably need to write down these ideas for other episodes that I'm doing as I'm recording this. Anyway, the song's still awesome, as is this next one. Now, I have to admit that I first heard Instant Karma in a Nike commercial when I was in the ninth grade. And we were learning about Hinduism in social studies class at the time, so I remember that one day about five or six of us were all excited to mention it to our teacher, Mr. Ponzi. And he got pretty excited too, probably because it meant we'd actually been paying attention. Granted, we were total nerds. This is honors social studies. And we got in that total nerd argument as to whether or not this was a Beatles or a John Lennon song. Uh, and this was before the internet, so we couldn't Google it. By the way, it's a solo Lennon song. And it is my favorite solo Lennon song, by the way. Kind of sounds like it could be like a Beatles track, like Revolution or something. And I don't have it on heavy rotation by any means at the moment, but I will say that it's a song that I circle back to every once in a while, as if I'd forgotten about it, and then I rediscover it, you know. And honestly, I like the message of this song. You know, we all shine on because it's a pretty genuine, positive message. We definitely need those positive messages and bright spots every once in a while, especially in our current geopolitical, social and whatever state of the world. It certainly contrasted with the dirge of angst that typified music of the early 90s. Then again, these next two songs did as well, which are All I Want by Toad the Wet Sprocket and Hey Jealousy by the Gin Blossoms. They were released within a year of one another, and they were part of a wave of lighter alternative pop that took its cues from grunge, but it didn't go all the way into Seattle. Nothing so loud Searing 
to say about Hey Jealousy than this song because I never got into Toad the Wet Sprocket between this, Walk on the Ocean, and Where Do We Fall Down, a song that was used in my so-called life. And in fact, I first remember hearing this song in a commercial as well because it was used in NBC's promos for a drama series called The Roundtable. I was slightly interested in this show because Stacey Hadiak, who played Lana Lang on Superboy, was on it, and I had a huge crush on her back in the day. And I'll probably write a blog post about that show at some point if I can find an episode or two to watch. But I did watch the pilot, and I remember it was very St. Elmo's fire in its tone. But beyond that, I don't think I watched any other episodes. All I Want as a Song in My Life didn't last very long and eventually became something that I would fast forward through to get to whatever was next. Still, I put it here because even in the midst of accumulating heavier, more serious music, I was still a less serious person who had a hankering for more romantic songs, and Toad the Wet Sprocket is one more step along the path that includes Bodines, the Rembrandts, Better Than Ezra, and yes, the Gin Blossoms. Miserable Experience is easily one of my favorite albums of the early to mid-90s. It was definitely one that would get me a side-eye or some ridicule from those friends of mine who judged my musical taste a little too much, and I wrote a whole blog post about that years ago, the message of which is, I finally realized you like what you like. Because honestly, who gives a shit if I'd rather listen to this song than something off of Master of Puppets? And Hey Jealousy has some outstanding lyrics. If you don't expect too much from me, you might not be let down, is one of my all-time favorite lines from a song. And this song still rocks. The album is still good. The stuff I have by the Jim Blossoms that not, is not on this album is still really, really good. 
And I know this isn't a flex by any means, but this is a, one of the few bands that I've met. I mean, a few like bands that people know that I've met. The story about it isn't anything huge. Uh, they played a very low attended show at my college in the spring of my freshman year, and my friend Valerie was covering it for the student newspaper. So we met them and we met Dishwalla because they were one of the opening acts. They were gracious enough, even though I'm pretty sure they were disappointed that they didn't have a huge turnout. But I think the lead singer had a good enough time flirting with my friend. Anyway, I oddly consider hate jealousy important when it comes to my musical upbringing, education. I don't even know what to call this half the time. Because along with bands like, say, Counting Crows, it marked a time when I wasn't that interested in following in lockstep with what my crowd was into. Yes, I can show you a CD collection with some music in it that was clearly chosen because people I hung around with almost dictated that it be listened to. And there was that also that unfortunate period in college when I listened to ska, but there was something oddly rebellious about my listening to the Gin Blossoms. Plus, and this is going to sound totally sexist, but you have to remember that I was a teenager at the time, knowing groups and songs like this helped when it came to talking to girls. And I'm not kidding. One of the icebreakers when it came to conversations and flirting in high school and college was music. Like you'd hear a song or be hanging out in someone's dorm room and you'd see their CD collection and the two of you might hit it off because you have something to talk about. Maybe you wouldn't hit it off, but at least you had something to talk about. I don't know. Granted, it never worked the way I wanted to. It's not like I was hooking up with girls all the time and I always got friend zones, but at least I was less of a loser in people's eyes. Maybe not. I think people thought I was weird anyway. I don't know. I'm getting an embarrassment flashback, so I probably need to move on. Anyway, here's Feed the Tree by Belly. This is probably the only song on here that had me on trend, although I can't say it led me to the Breeders, or Liz Fair, or Hole, or any female-fronted act at the time. Shit, I didn't even discover artists like Sarah McLachlan and Indigo Girls until I was in college. But I distinctly remember taping this off the radio early in the Tom's Crap run, and I wish that Belly and other groups like them got more play on the stations I was listening to because they didn't really play a lot of female-fronted rock or alternative. And the other station's female-led songs were by Mariah Carey, Whitney Houston, or Celine Dion, who are people I have nothing against, but they weren't at the top of my list in high school. And they got played on the car-friendly radio ones, like WBLI, and another parent-friendly radio station, 97.5 WALK, or as they used to say, Walk FM. They broadcast from a couple of towns over, so their signal was very strong. And they were also the station that you had to listen to when you had to hear whether or not school was closed for a snow day. 
But they also ran a nightly love song and dedication show called Walk Pillow Talk. I would actually listen to this pretty often when Z100's Love Phones with Chris Jagger and Dr. Judy was a call and advice show like Love Lines, you know, the one that was hosted by Adam Carolla and Dr. Drew, got boring. It was also really good to listen to right before bed because it was like really mellow. And while you did have your fair share of softacular songs on the program, there was the one song they played from time to time that actually became pretty big in my high school. tell you that I discovered this song via the Julia Roberts movie Sleeping with the Enemy. I will also tell you that the version that always got played on the radio was a radio edit. The line making love in the green grass was replaced with laughing and a running hey hey and that's because apparently years earlier it had been considered too racy of a lyric and the censored version kind of stuck around. Not only that the radio edit wound up on the Best of Van Morrison album that was released in 94, and therefore was the kind of dorm room version that you would hear, because a lot of people had that CD. I didn't know what the actual lyrics were until 96, because my friend's band covered it on their only album. Part of me thinks I have told this story before because I'm getting old and I have a tendency to retell the same story without realizing it. Of course, when I do that, the important thing to remember is that I was wearing an onion on my belt, which was the style at the time. But my friend Chris, whom I have known since we were four years old, had this punk band our senior year. It was called Wasted Time, and uh, they not only made a demo, which they would sell to kids like at school for five bucks a tape, but they got enough buzz to get an independent record deal from a label called Grass Records, and they recorded an album called When It Was Fun. Uh, for what it's worth, it's a solid mid-90s punk album. It sounds exactly like what three guys who really liked Green Day at the time would sound like, and that's not an insult or a knock. I still listen to it from time to time. Anyway, I interviewed them for the school paper, and they mentioned that this was a song that they covered. I was surprised because it's not the track you expect teen punks to cover. When the album came out, the press materials, which I still have, mentioned that they decided to cover the song because the girls they were friends with liked it. 
I mean, I don't know if that's the only reason. You obviously cover a song because you like it in some way as well, but it's almost like that dorm room flirting thing I was talking about earlier, you know? The radio continued to be a big part of my musical fandom and life beyond my sophomore year of high school. You heard Amanda and I talk about it at WHFS on episode 64, and in an instant I can bring to mind years of driving and flipping through radio stations on regular and satellite radio. Plus, Spotify has brought some of that back to me as well. Yes, there are pre-assembled playlists, and the algorithm sometimes picks things for me, but I have lost count of the number of genre rabbit holes I've fallen down over the last few years. While this is a pretty obvious thing to say, the songs I taped off the radio, even the ones that are a bit regrettable, were all personal because they were me listening on my own and making a decision about what I liked on my own. The tapes I made may have been full of songs that so many others had or listened to, but they still felt like mine. And I can't even regret those choices, because there's something pure about that time when you're figuring out who you are and what you like. And that'll do it for this episode. Um, If it sounds a little different this time around, I have a brand new microphone. My blue snowball kicked the bucket I went to Staples uh, to buy another Snowball because they were on sale and they were out of them, but they had a Yeti. And I was like, you know what? I've been meaning to upgrade. So um, I'm still kind of figuring out levels and I'm still kind of figuring out like, you know, uh, pop filters and all of that sort of stuff. So you're going to have to bear with me for the next episode or two as uh, as I get these things together. But I will be back next month with a Halloween adjacent episode as I'll be looking at some books and pop culture about the stranger, more unsolved things in the world. Until then, you can check out the blog for more essays as well as links to these songs in the show notes. Please feel free to send me feedback via email and Twitter. And as always, thanks for listening. And take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at PopAff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness.